Welcome to The Divorce Podcast, where we explore all aspects of ending relationships, separation, and parenting apart. If your marriage or partnership has ended, or you have friends and family who are separating, this podcast is for you. I'm Kate Daly, a relationship counsellor, divorce specialist, and co-founder of Amicable, the online legal service for separating couples. In each episode, we look at relationships and separation from different angles, including the emotional, legal, and social. I'm joined by experts and special guests who share their own unique stories, experience, and tips with the goal of helping people end relationships in a kinder and better way. This is a longer episode where I was joined by Louise Neville for a deep dive into how to survive the family court. Louise is the founder of Family Court Survival, and supports people emotionally, practically and strategically through the family court system in England and Wales. She's a master divorce coach and professional Mackenzie friend and works with children's welfare at the forefront of everything she does. We begin this episode by exploring what we mean by the family court and Louise explains how she ended up there after separating from her husband over unresolved financial and then child arrangement issues. This episode is focused on helping you navigate the family court when you have no choice but to be there. I found Louise's detailed explanation of the process of Children Act proceedings really useful in understanding what's involved if you end up in dispute when you separate. If you loved this episode, then please subscribe and rate us on your preferred listening platform. Welcome, Louise. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's lovely to have you. Thank you very much for joining me today. And this is a bit of a different episode because we're normally talking about all things amicable and today we're taking a slightly different approach. Louise, your experience is helping people who end up in the family court. So really we're going to get to the other end of the spectrum in terms of where one of you or both of you can't agree and you have to go down this route, the family court, which everybody always says, oh, you you should try and avoid that at all possible costs and that we know ultimately, and I know personally, and it sounds like you do too, that sometimes you don't have a choice about ending up in the family court. That is just where you you get to. So I'm really excited to talk about this and just to unpack for anyone going through this kind of more traumatic side of a divorce and separation, some of the tips and hints for how to survive that. So let's start, if we can, just talk to me a little bit about what we mean by the family court. Let's start at the basics. Well, so the family court has obviously been set up to help couples, families that are in dispute about finances, child arrangements. They also look at things like non-modestation orders and occupation orders. So after a separation, it is there as a basis where they hope to find a resolution. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? So in all divorces and separations, documents go to the family court. But often when you can resolve things more amicably, it's just your documents that go, they get signed off or sealed, as it's called by the court. But if the two of you haven't found a way of resolving either, as you say, finances or children issues, then you can ask the court to make some of those decisions for you. And I always think the difficulty with that is you might have agreed lots of things and you might just be stuck on one little bit of it. But when you go to the family court, whether it's on children or finances, the court has the power to look at all of your agreements or issues and can make orders about any aspect 
of your family life. And that's that I personally found that quite intrusive and I didn't appreciate when I started. I kept trying to ask them to do one little bit of it and they were kept sort of throwing it all up in the air. And so it, it, at the beginning of the process, it can feel like you're taking several steps back. Is that something that you, that you felt as well when you were going through this? Absolutely. You know, when I, when I ended up in family court, which was very quickly, actually, you don't know about the system. If you, do, if you don't know anything about divorce, you don't know anything about family court, then you don't know what's going to happen when you walk through those doors. And it is incredibly intimidating. And as you say, from the start, you're then in a process and you're effectively, you know, I describe it to my clients like it's a flow chart. So a lot of people walk through the door thinking, oh, great, I'm going to go and tell the judge exactly what's happened. The judge is going to completely understand it and he's going to make an order and away we go. Well, as you and I both know, Kate, that is not what happens with family court. It is not simple. It is a real tough journey and it can last for months or even years. So in my own experience, I spent 10 years in and out of family court. Because as you say, you go in for one thing and it unpacks more and more and more. And it also opens up the ability for anybody dealing with a difficult person. They can throw more at you throughout that process. They can accuse you of things that you've done, not done. They can say things. It opens up new avenues for the court to go down. And of course, once you're involved with Kafkas, who look at your situation and maybe speak to your children, depending on their age and depending on whether it's it's necessary, you know, that process in itself goes on for 16 weeks. So as a minimum. So once you are in the system, people think, right, I'm going to go in and I'm going to get that final order. So the first hearing that you turn up for is a first hearing dispute resolution. And of course, that is basically just explaining to the judge what the issues are at that time. Everybody then gets sent away and you come back for the second part, which is a dispute resolution appointment. So in that second hearing, they're hoping again that you will manage to sort it out between you and manage to come to some form of resolution that works for the family. If that doesn't happen, you then come back again for a final hearing. That's the basis of that flow chart. But of course, it can also go off in different directions, as we know. It can involve other professionals, it can involve therapists, it can involve school, it can involve police, social services. It really can divert off. And, and that means that the length of that time in court is just going to keep going. There's no blanket one size fits all when it comes to family court, because obviously every family is different. And that's where I work with my clients to actually find out the nitty gritty of what's going on in their situation. Because once you know what's going on in their situation, you can read it a whole lot clearer and you can make the right decision on, you know, with your client to make sure that the child is coming first with all the decisions and hopefully trying to reach a solution in that way. It's really interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, what you say about you used to take the time and spend the time, I think that's one of the big frustrations of going to the family court is very often you don't have judicial continuity. So that means you could see one judge for the first hearing, a totally separate judge for another hearing. It just goes by list and who's available. And although that is set out as one of the sort of ideals that you should have judicial continuity, it very rarely happens because of the backlogs and the scheduling that goes on. So, you know, having to, you never, you never get to a point where you feel like one person has heard all of the evidence and has got the whole picture. You know, judges are under huge amounts of pressure and sometimes are literally looking at a case 10, 15 minutes before the, the sitting time. And so, 
these are decisions that are affecting your whole family and your whole life. It feels really difficult, doesn't it, to accept that you don't have someone to listen. So I can imagine the fact that you spend that time with them is very affirming in its own way. Within this court system, people are struggling. They need emotional support more than anything else because they need to be able to talk through a system with somebody that understands it and somebody that truly gets those feelings that they're going through because they're scared. They're scared of what might happen and what control the court does have, you know, specifically children being removed from parents and things like that. It's just awful. And also, I think that stays with you. So I think that legacy, that trauma you experience when you're fearful of somebody being able to take your children away or to interfere in your family life in that way, I think that does stay with you forever. And it has an impact on the way you spend the rest of your sort of child rearing life, even when you're out of the court system. I mean, I've been out of the court system only for two years now. So mine lasted from 2012 till two years ago when we finally had an order. My children got to a point where there was no order going to be made. But even now, I think it still has repercussions and ramifications on how I am as a parent. And that's, it's, it's, it's hurtful and it's scarring. And I wonder what, what you say to people. So when you're helping them, how do you get them How do you help people emotionally prepare? Because I guess if someone's listening to this and this is their experience, that's kind of what people want to know, isn't it? What? Because I always think that, what what could I have done to help myself get through that in a better, less damaging, less traumatizing way? Yeah, it's really important to have that understanding. So before anybody goes to court, you know, often I will accompany them as a McKinsey friend. Some people are too far away for that. But we talk through a lot of the concerns. We talk through about things that may or may not happen. And of course, what most people do is catastrophize. So they look at it and they think the absolute worst. And I did it. I did it. And I thought, oh, my gosh, she's going to be taken off me. I couldn't give you a reason as to why she was going to be taken off me. But at the time, because it's a threat, you're in real danger. So you're going to fight, flight or freeze. And of course, all the emotions are ramped up. So we prepare a lot by removing the emotion, as in we process it and we look at, okay, let's look at the things that we can control. And the big thing that we can control is our reaction. So what they do is they'll prod you to get the reaction so that they can say, I told you, I told you. So quite often what happens is somebody says, you know, this person has mental health issues and, you know, she shouts at the children. She does this, she does that. He as well. And of course, the immediate reaction is that emotional response of, I don't shout I at don't the shout kids. I don't shout at the kids. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and of course, How dare you? you yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You're doing exactly what they want you to do, which is then saying, and I told you they were like that. So we go through a lot of things like that and a little bit of role play and Quite often what starts as being really, really anxious and upset and very tearful turns into something where we can smile, we can have a laugh towards the end of our our Zoom session because the control is there. So it's getting clarity about the situation. Why are they doing that? What reaction is it they want? Okay, what does the judge care about? They're not going to care about all of these things, but the judge is going to care about one, two and three. Let's look and focus on these three issues, for example, on what that judge is going to look at. And of course, it just takes the overwhelm away. And once you get rid of the overwhelm, you can control your emotions a whole lot better. It's fascinating, isn't it? I think the role that the judge plays in the training for judges is really key in all of this, because one of the criticisms I would have with the family court system is that there are a lot of very good judges who can make decisions, but they're trying to make decisions in the context of normal, normal behavior and normal relationship. 
And when you've been through an abusive relationship, you can't make decisions in the context of normal. So you, it's very difficult to say to somebody who's been the victim of abuse, that email isn't abusive or that saying that to you isn't abusive or this isn't abusive or that isn't abusive. When actually, because you're so primed to the abuse that practically every interaction that you have with the other person feels very abusive. And it's very difficult then to write orders and child arrangement orders, for example, that take into account how limited, for example, the contact between the two of you needs to be in order for you to be able to function and that kind of thing. And I I wonder what you think about the type of training that's really required in family court to help judges fully appreciate what trauma and abuse looks like. Oh, absolutely. They, They need to be trauma informed. They need to all have the training. If they are dealing with cases in family court, again, I'll reiterate, they are only there because there is one or more difficult people within that relationship. Now, we all want divorce to be easy. We all want it to be amicable. And in the ideal world, we would all turn around and say, "Okay, come on, let's put the children first and let's go down this route. But that is never going to happen with that difficult person. Hence why they are there in front of a judge. If a judge doesn't understand coercive control, they don't understand what goes on behind closed doors. What upsets me most in this situation is when an abusive person is sat there with a barrister or a solicitor that is doing the talking for them. That judge will never get to know that individual because they are dealing with somebody who's being paid to represent them in the right way. This is fascinating, isn't it? What do you think then about if people are there, not if you feel that people shouldn't be represented and they should be sitting there, how does that work in practice when you've got somebody who's potentially an abuser cross-examining or questioning the victim? How do you see that kind of thing work? Because that's something that now has been removed. It, it was there when I was in court, my ex got to cross-examine me. It was literally perhaps the most traumatizing experience of my entire life. It's worse than the actual abuse because it's it's coming at you again in a controlled official environment, which takes away any idea that anything can ever be safe. So it, it's to me, that was the worst element of all of it. So how do you, in that scenario, because I, I see your point as well, it's all when it, when the polite veneer of the English court is placed on everything. Nothing feels that bad. You know, it's just people having a conversation. But obviously, we that's not the reality of it. So how do you get to the reality, protect the people involved? Well, this is it, isn't it? This is where a reform needs to come in. But it's OK. How do we get to that? And of course, it's a really difficult question. But ultimately, for where I'm sitting at the start, there needs to be some form of triage. There needs to be, and not together, not together. So obviously, we don't send people to mediation if there's domestic abuse involved. They do not want to be breathing the same air because they'll either really clam up and not say anything and let it all be dictated, or it will be so, well, it will be traumatic anyway to sit there with somebody. So triage is important. And and at that point, as I say, it's getting to know that individual and spending that time. Now, I understand, obviously, resources, money, the cost of doing that will be huge. And of course, we, we need the manpower behind that. And effectively, that's what CAFCAS are there for once you are in court. But if you look at the way CAFCAS do their initial safeguarding call, it's basically a telephone call. And you say what your version of your story is. And then that gets written down on paper. So on that very first hearing, this one says this about you, this one says that about you, and immediately then there's more conflict because actually at that point people think, right, I'll just throw everything in then. And 
that is how court then starts off. Whereas if we spent that time with some form of triage process with the individuals, we might be able to, to actually convince them that actually throwing this mud, you know, is not going to help. And then if you if you then progress into the court system, that they are literally concentrating on the issues that need to be concentrated on. And now domestic abuse is is horrific and it happens so often, way too often. And a lot of orders are put in place where, oh, well, you don't need to speak, you know, just just drop the child in, in at this place every week. And all you're doing is re-traumatising that victim week in, week out. How are they ever meant to process and be able to move forward with life when all you're doing is presenting them? And and the worst one, yeah. oh, God. why don't you just get on for the sake of your children? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I didn't think of that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's such a common thing because as you say, Judges just want you to to get on, but they're there for that reason. I just want to just go back a little minute because you mentioned CAFCAS. For anyone who's sort of all new to all of this, just explain what CAFCAS is and what role they play in family court. And I guess here we should just say we are majoring here on children issues and child arrangement orders. But obviously, and CAFCAS aren't involved in the financial side, we're not talking about the finances at this point, but just explain CAFCAS to us. So CAFCAS are are an organisation that are effectively the eyes and ears of the court. So the court will, as soon as an application goes into court, CAFCAS will be informed and they will be asked to telephone both parties ahead of the first hearing, so the FHDRA. Now, the point of that telephone call is basically a safeguarding call. So are there any issues going on with the family that the court needs to be aware of? And this is, as I say, this is the point where they will tell their story over the telephone. There's no fact checking. There's no sort of deep understanding. And actually, there's no emotion attached to it. It's basically, right, tell me what you've got. I'm going to write it down. Off the back of that, you receive that report. And it, it's a, in this case, you know, it's a he said, she said in the in the situation where where it's a man and wife. and. As I say, that is where a lot of damage is done moving into the court arena because it's already on the table then and then people go into that defence mode or they're fighting again for survival. So I personally don't like the way that's done. Normally, they follow the status quo. So let's just put a scenario out there that somebody has just stopped contact just because they want to, not because there's any safeguarding concerns. The other party, therefore, won't get contact reinstated at the first hearing because following the status quo, just in case there's a safeguarding concern, it might mean that somebody doesn't see their child for six months because it's on that safeguarding form. And and these are the little gaps in the system that are absolutely vital that need to be fixed because it's ruining people's lives. So that triage, I feel, is so important at the start. And in an ideal world, then, how would that triage take place with more fact checking? So you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a, just a quick 10, 15 minute phone call and all your dirty linen kind of and everything. And people, I guess as well, the other thing is people know some of these things, some of the alarm bells to ring, don't they, in order to get, as you say, people know and can game this system because they know that status quo prevails. They know, therefore, that to withhold contact will leave them in a position where they don't have to they don't have to facilitate contact and then you say as you say all of those vital relationships for children break down between the other parent and it's just i guess what you're saying is there needs to be a, a better because the first touch is so important the first touch has got to be a lot better from what you're saying i think 
Absolutely. Yeah. Um, fact checking is obviously that's that's a necessary. But when we're talking about abuse, quite often we can't prove that. Quite often people don't think, you know, when it's verbal abuse, it's daily. You're treading on eggshells constantly. You're worried about saying the wrong thing. You're worried about, you know, leaving the house in case you get told off. It's, sometimes it really is so deep set. You, you, it becomes your norm. And you operate in such a way to protect yourself. But what obviously you're not thinking is, I'll record that. Oh, I'm, I, let me hold on. Let me. Can you stop? Because if I get my camera out and I record you, I've got my evidence. And of course, it's a survival mechanism. You are just trying to stay alive and live another day. And, and I know that sounds extreme, but that is how it feels. So quite often for, for people that are suffering domestic abuse, they can't prove it. And of course, that again will fall short because... If you truly are suffering and you're sat down in triage and you say, this is what this person's doing to me, and they say, okay, where's your evidence? What do we do at that point? We've got to help these people. But at the same time, as we know, there are other people that will try and play the system and say, well, I, I don't have any evidence either. So it is a really tricky situation, but it's something that needs speaking about more, speaking about in more depth, and obviously looking at results of people that have gone through family court. Why are we not checking what the outcomes looked like? How did that work out for the family? Because we can only learn from previous mistakes. And one thing that I find with, with family court is that, you know, once, once you've got your final order, that's it. Oh, you're off. See you later. Exactly. Yeah. There's, and there's, there's nothing, is it? And, and you're right. There's no, no one follows up for an outcome study about how relationships turned out or what actually happened. You're right. It's, it's just right that box is ticked, you're off the books, off you go. That's right. And of course, because they are backlogged and because, you know, COVID didn't help and everything went online and they're still catching up from COVID, that I think checking, you know, the outcome, it's just at the bottom of the pile. And actually, if we're looking at reform or we're looking at change and we're looking at helping people through these systems, we've got to look at what works, what doesn't work, you know, and, and taking that feedback, which is why Kafkas are doing a good thing by introducing the family forum and allowing people with lived experience to come and tell their stories and show them what worked, what didn't work. But there's still a huge amount that needs to be done because it's the flip of a coin. You know, are you going to get a good social worker or are you going to get a really poor social worker? And I had the, the privilege of having both. You know, I had an amazing one, but I had one that well, I mean, let's not even go there. But this is what a lot of people are experiencing. Yeah, exactly. And it's only when you have one of each that you can understand the impact that that has on your entire case and your entire life. It, yeah, it's it's just shocking, isn't it? The, and for me, it was the the huge kind of disparity between the skill sets that was just in, just quite. I was quite incredulous too. But you mentioned the Kafkas Family Forum just. Tell us a little bit about that. What is that? Who's it aimed at? Can anybody go and have a listen to the, what the stories are there? Okay, so it was set up two years ago. The idea is that the chief executive, Jackie Tirto, wanted a group that have lived experience of being in family court and having gone through the service of Kafkas. And they were looking at people with all sorts of outcomes. So effectively, it was an interviewed position. And we go to meetings, we have very regular meetings, and we talk through their strategic plan. We look at individual factors within CAFCAS that are working and not working. So, for example, quite recently, there was a change to the, the welcome letter. So when court invite CAFCAS to speak to both parties, you get a welcome letter. Now, my welcome letter, 
I think was very much court jargon. You know, we're here, eyes near the court, and we're going to interview you. Oh my God, who are these people? What are they? I don't know who they are. How are we going to interview? Now the Welcome Pack literally will spell it out for you and it will explain who they are. It will explain what the aim of the phone call is, what they're then going to do. They'll explain what the outcomes will look like. They'll explain now that when they do interview children, they will write to the child after to explain why they listened to their reasons or why they chose not to listen to their reasons and explain the outcome so that it's not all left to the parents. So there's a lot of things that they are they're doing. They're speaking to the wider family where it's appropriate. Um, but there's a lot of things in place where, you know, people are giving their feedback and they are listening. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot to change. And of course, it doesn't change overnight. But my experience so far, I've been on the group for just over a year now, and I feel that I am being listened to, and I feel that within time, things will change. There's never going to be a perfect organisation, but I'm certainly fighting for the things that I would like changed. I guess it's important as well to say at this juncture, probably, that we in this country, we have what's called the no order principle, which means the court only really wants to get involved if it absolutely has to. And I suppose as we've been talking, you know, you said a couple of times you're only in court because one person or both people are unable to, you know, actually make a decision and and jointly agree something. But we know from the court backlogs that some cases are just inappropriate and they're just there because people don't know or think that's what they should do. So I think it's just really worth pointing out that the no order principle means ideally the court expects you to sort this stuff out yourself. And only if there is either a safeguarding issue or an intractable dispute should one of you or both of you be making an application to the family court? And when you make that application, you make it through, is it a C100 form? It is, yeah. So that's, yeah, C100 will deal with the the child arrangements or anything surrounding that specific issue order or prohibitive steps order, if that's required. Okay. So that's the starting point, isn't it? The first, I suppose, recommendation in any walk of this kind of court life would be try and sort this out yourselves. But accepting that for some people that's not safe or not possible, at that point you have to go down the court route. And that's that's primarily what we've been talking about. So we're not aiming this discussion at people who just fallen out for a little bit, but ultimately probably could resolve a dispute by going to either a service like Amicable or mediation or whatever, or a specialist parenting service. There are lots of different sort of resources out there for people who can come together and make an agreement. And we've covered those in different episodes. And we'll put those in the show notes as well, if you, in case you're listening to this and thinking, well, I could probably sort this out. But this really, this is about people where they are utterly stuck. And it sounds like the first step, as you have said, is this Kafkas conversation that will either ignite the tinderbox or not. But from that consultation with Kafkas, what happens next then in the, in the court process? So after the telephone call, as I say, they will write a report which they'll send to both parties, unless the report is so severely damaging that they will just send it to the judge if there's, if there's a fear for safety. You will then go to your, your first hearing dispute resolution appointment. And of course, the judge will read that. Now, if there are any safeguarding concerns or what the Kafkas will do is they will uh, write a list of recommendations based on what they have heard from both parties. It may be that then Kafkas get re-involved. So the, the Fahidra, the first hearing is like a directions hearing. So the judge will make an order for direction. What direction is this going in? 
And if there is abuse of any kind or there's any behaviours that warrant further investigation, CAFCAS will remain involved and often be asked to do what's called a Section 7 report. So a Section 7 report is much more in detail. They will meet with you. It could be by Zoom nowadays because a lot of things are by Zoom. They may come uh, uh, come to your home. They may speak to, they'll do police checks on you. They would do social services reports. They may even speak to the school. They may even speak to your your child or children, dependent on their age. But the Section 7 is, is a much more encompassing report on, okay, what is really going on here? But again, my argument is, are they going to spend enough time with you to find out what's really going on here? And as you said, you know, some are amazing at their job and some are really quite poor and don't have the ability to understand abuse. The fear of a lot of people shouting abuse and saying, hey, I am being abused, is that it's often retaliated with a form of alienation claim. And again, that puts the fear factor in. And because these are the buzzwords that are flying around at the moment, People are finding the reason to put those into their documents and it makes the process very, very difficult. So what what we want is is a, a place where we can be open and honest with somebody. But the fear of being too open and honest then puts you into that awkward situation of, oh, gosh, you know, is is something going to come back at me? But this is where that time is required. And I think that the more... Again, resources, you know, the more time they can spend with you and the more information you can give or evidence that you can give, the better your situation will be. But of course, quite often then children are dragged into the process at that point. So children are then asking questions. So not only are you dealing with perhaps a full-time job, running the house, maybe other children, club running here and there, school runs, everything associated with that, you've also, you're going to get then a letter that's telling you you're going back to court for the next appointment and you have to just drop everything for that particular day and go regardless of whether or not you have childcare, whether or not you can't take the day off work you don't get told once you're in the court system it's it's so dictative and all-consuming and that's something I really want to get across to the listeners is that court is not an easy journey and the reason I'm called family court survival is because going through that process is a bit like fighting for survival sometimes. It can really be tough. And that's why you need to have your support group around you. You need to have the people that understand what's going on and and not just talking to your your best friends and and friends of friends because anybody that's been divorced is going to have their own story, but it doesn't follow the same path. So if somebody turns around to you and says, oh, it's fine, don't worry about it, you'll get, you know, 70%. No, it's not good. And we hear that so often. My friend said, okay, well, you know, we can't we can't go there. So it's such an individual thing. But yeah, I think it's, it's really important to individualise cases and not have a broad spectrum that everybody's in the same boat because they just aren't. No, and you, t- you make a couple of really good points there. I think the the trauma and the dictativeness of the court, if you like, you're right, you have to drop everything. But then you have to then, you've got the build up to that where you are beside yourself. So trying to work and do all of that kind of stuff is difficult. You've then got the recovery after your court date, which is another few days of being utterly. And for me, I can just remember, that was the first time I ever smelt fear. Yes. So literally going to the toilet between hearings, if you've got an all day hearing, going to literally being able to smell fear because it's such a traumatizing process. That will always stay with me. It's just really, you can't underestimate 
the amount of time. It's not just the court date, it's the surrounding time around that when you need to be mentally alert and doing things like you say, whether you're looking after children or whether you're working or trying to do both. It's the impact it has throughout that period of time. It is just, and the fear that you could get a letter from the court, it could drop in onto your doormat at any point with the next hearing date or the judgment or directions or whatever it is. It's so it's so upsetting as a process that you're right. It it is a traumatizing process that you survive. And trying to compare with other people, and if you're a friend or family member, you have to be really circumspect with what you say and careful because your understanding of it isn't necessarily going to be helpful to somebody. And we, we've we invested quite a bit of time and energy in a friends and family campaign at Amicable, like giving help and advice to family and friend members to be able to learn to say the right things and not overstep the mark and not give your two penneth worth about your next door neighbor's auntie's brother who got this or got that and that's what you should be going for kind of thing. So I, I hear, I think there's really two very interesting points. Yeah, that's amazing. So, yeah. And it is, it's, if you're if you're prepared for court and you understand what's coming, again, the overwhelm can be reduced. So I speak to a lot of people and they say, what's even going to happen? What does it, what does it look like? You know, and these are the basics of walking through security to get into court, having your bag searched, you know, how you, how you stand and you rise when the judge walks into the room, how you address the judge, if you are a litigant in person, what the room looks like. So just describing that to a client is enough in that, in, in, you know, in, in part of a session to, okay, I get it now. I get that's what's going to happen because nobody told me I walked in thinking I was going to an, you know, I was going to airport security because that's effectively what it is. And then that, that awful thing hits you where you think, I feel like a criminal. I feel like somebody that's done something terribly wrong. So it was all the the things that I went through that I thought, wow, nobody told me that. Nobody prepared me for that. That was a heightened emotion, big time. I'm not going to let anybody else go through that. And this is why I sit down with clients and I prepare them fully and, you know, often hold their hand through the journey from start to finish. I come into cases sometimes that are years long. You know, why has it been in court three years, five years, six years? There's no way any court case should be going on for that length of time and and they've lost you know I lost 25% of my life when I came out of court and turned 40 25% of my life was spent in and out of a courtroom and depleting every bit of finance that me and, and I I mean I couldn't afford that money my parents thank goodness my family were there for me to help you know go through that battle and we'll never recover that we'll never get that back but what I what I am here to do is is help others so that they do not need to go through that system in the same way that I did. Well, you've done a really nice sort of run through of the different steps in the process. We've got to the point where we've had CAFCAS, they've written their section seven, you've had your first hearing, you've had your directions hearing. How does this process conclude then? So after CAFCAS have written their section seven report, what happens then? So you go back to court for what's called a DRA. So that's a dispute resolution appointment. Again, the court are very much there to try and convince you to make a resolution. Is there anything now in the paperwork, in the evidence that's presented, you know, between you, because you can't present evidence to the court just yet. Is there anything there that makes you think, do you know what, we can compromise now? You know, we're at the point we're going to put our children first or we're going to we're not going to go tit for tat and we're going to reach a resolution. If you reach a resolution, then a court order will be drafted at that time and you may go home. (laughs) And that's a child arrangements order. So that's that's for child arrangements. Yes. Yes. 
if you still can't reach a resolution at that appointment, you then come back at a further date, and that is for a final hearing. Now, final hearings can be one, two, three, four days. I, I've even known some be five days long. If you can imagine sitting in a courtroom all day, every day for three, four, five days, it is very, I can. very intense. Yes, you know, I know, <laughs> I know. It's so full on, and that is where evidence gets presented. So, of course, what a lot of people want is for their evidence to be heard straight away. Look, I have this evidence. Can I present it? Can I present it? You can't present that yet. You can't present that yet. You know, and this is their opportunity. But as you say, this it takes two forms. Then you've got the person that is potentially the the difficult person still playing up. You've got the person that is potentially the one that's just sort of been dragged through this process and is, thank God, at a final hearing where they can actually get their words out. But under cross-examination and, and questions from a judge, you know, it's effectively your, your one and only opportunity to put forward why it is you're asking for X, Y, Z. And again, that needs preparation. You, you need to go through what's going to happen so that you don't freak out in the courtroom. And, you know, and it's, it's very much, this is where characters start to come out. This is what I said at the start, that, you know, sometimes a very difficult person, if it's not going their way or they're not able to hold, hold court, because a lot of difficult people want their narrative heard. So they'll answer the question and then they'll keep going and going and diverting off so that it dist- distracts the attention for what is the real question or the real issue here. And they will go off and it, it takes a very good judge to say, okay, stop, next question. You know, and 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 this is the game. And, and again, this is the flip of a coin. Do we have a judge here that understands that this person is trying to take it off down their narrative and, and move away from the real issues at heart? Are they trained or are they just going to listen and let them dictate the journey? And, and again, we don't know what you're going to get until you're in that room. At some point, you get this final order, though, yes, don't you? It. And in theory, you ride off into the sunset with your final order. And I think, well, I suppose, one of the things that I would say about this is you, you get sucked into the, the belief at the beginning of this process that once you've got a final order, that will be it. But obviously, that's the very beginning of it, because then enforcing that order is a whole different ballgame. And that will have to be the subject for another um, episode, because we'll be running out of time in a minute. But essentially, that's the issue, isn't it? You get your final order. And then because of the process, your relationship is in a worse place. You have become more polarized. It is harder to communicate. And therefore, although you have an order that might say what you want, or it might say what your partner wanted, you are then left without any means to actually work together to implement that order. And I think that's the bit that that people perhaps sometimes don't see because you can be right and get your order or you can have a relationship and those two things can be you know the opposite side of a coin and that's really really difficult because when you've spent that long and you've been either dragged through as you said or you've pushed it through the court whichever kind of way you've gone if you've got an order and then you still can't get that implemented it's it's soul destroying absolutely and and when you've got that order it might be so loosely written that it's going to yes. be from day one misinterpreted or yeah. interpreted in another way. And, and and then it flags up whole new issues. And of course, co-parenting has gone. 
So it's teaching people how to how to deal with it and also to try and make that that court order as tight as humanly possible. I mean, just recently... Well, you I learn spoke- that through the process, don't you? Because I've, I've done this. We've had three or four orders. The first couple were, as you see, you could drive a bus through them. By the time we got to the fourth one, I was reading it myself and like having to go back and say, no, that's, I'm sorry, that that needs to be more clear. <laughs> we can't have that. It's Absolutely. But again, some judges don't get that. So some judges, even in cases today, will say... And I would now hope that the pair of you can go away and sort that out between you, you know. And you think, well, hang on, this one hates this one more than they did three hours ago before they turned up here. So how is that going to happen? And and we laugh, but it's not funny. These are people's lives that are that are being interfered with forevermore. And people can't Yeah, and it's 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 children who ultimately won't get the the level of exchange between their parents, won't get the time with each parent because like you say, somebody will be saying, well, you haven't followed that process or you haven't done it that way and therefore you can't do it. And it's, yeah, it's just very frustrating. That's right. Yeah. And the last thing you want is a child to be put in the middle of this process. A child should not live their childhood being dragged in court, you know, and between parties and and finding out about judges and court and all the things that are going on. It shouldn't be there for that child to have to experience that. The adult should be able to sort it out between them. The problem we have is a difficult person or two people, it will never work out for that child. Well, Louise, I wish, well, I obviously don't wish this had ever happened to you, but I wish you'd been around when I was going through this. If people want to understand more about the process and want to, you know, seek your guidance and help for navigating this, if this is where they are, where can they find you and how can they get hold of information about, you know, what to expect in this flowchart you've talked about? Okay, so people can go onto my website, which is www.familycourtsurvival.co.uk. Uh, They can email me at louise at familycourtsurvival.co.uk or go to my Instagram or Facebook pages, which is Family Court Survival. There's lots of information on there. There'll be lots of reviews from clients that I have already helped. And as I say, this is is really, you know, two and a half years in, this is still the start of it. There's these big changes to be had, but I don't want anybody going through Family Court alone. I don't want anybody to feel that they can't get the emotion out and, and that they have the ability to speak to somebody that I completely understands what it is they're going through. Having been there myself, I'm trained in a way that I'm able to help them strategically plan, practically plan, and things like communication. You know, emails get bombarded around like they just come left, right and centre. Okay, some don't need responding, some need responding with a couple of words. So I can talk them through the entire process just to get some clarity and have their hand held throughout the process so that they've got someone by their side who knows what it is they're going through. That's brilliant. I mean, it's just such a fantastic service. I kind of want to thank you, you know, for setting this up and for for making yourself available and for helping people in this way. It is so needed. It is such a traumatizing experience. I am so super glad that there is a resource that we can point to. And if people contact us and we can't help, that we can send people to a really trusted and fantastically run resource that will genuinely help them navigate what is a really difficult and traumatizing space. So sincerely, from me to you, thank you, Louise. And thank you very much for sharing it on the podcast today. It's been really lovely talking to you. Thank you, Kate. If you've enjoyed this episode and you want to subscribe for updates, you can visit thedivorcepodcast.com or you can download more episodes from your favourite listening platform. Thank you very much, Louise, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Mm -hmm.